Yeah, welcome. Welcome to church. You know, we nearly cancelled today after the rugby. Oh, my days. What a hideous, hideous time. I texted Tim about half time saying, this is not looking good. And uh, we're doing a baptism of a six-month-old this morning. And he was like, yeah, let's cancel the baptism and hold a funeral. (laughs) And I mean, it almost feels like that, doesn't it? Anyway, there is always hope. There's always resurrection. New life. That's what we believe. I don't know quite how it applies here, but... um, We'll hold on to that. But anyway, welcome to St. Dee's. Um, my name's Pat. I'm the associate vicar here. And you join us uh, at an exciting time in um, the term. And for us as a church, we are, or just have, looked at a mini-series looking at our vision, who we are as a church, where we're going. And, well, we're sort of continuing that as we go into a mini-series uh, looking at Gideon, one of the judges. And we're going to be looking at his story over the next couple of weeks. And you can find it on page 236 of the green Bibles, which are on white tables by the pillars. So perhaps helpful people can help hand some around. 236, we're going to be in chapter 6. So beginning at verse 1 of chapter 6. Otherwise find it on your iPhone or else just sit back and listen. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, 
But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Let's keep that page open and let's pray together. And Lord, we just thank you so much for your word, that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and wield that word, that sword, cut us to the heart, reveal things in our lives, speak to us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk uh, a little bit this evening about turning daydreams into destiny. Daydreams. You like that? We all have them, don't we? Daydreams to destiny. I mean daydreams, I mean. We all have them. I mean, they're the kind of things that... I don't know, when you have a quiet moment in the office or something and you just look into space, into the middle distance and you're gone for a few moments and your friend is like, hello, you know, Steve, back in the room, or your favorite piece of music comes up, you go somewhere. Those places, that's what I'm talking about, the daydreams. I'm not talking about fantasies in the right use of the phrase. I'm not talking about the stuff that's just ridiculous, like you have a fantasy of playing premiership football for Arsenal when the best you've managed is sort of old school second eleven team. And just this weekend, you were dropped, even for that. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. Or wanting to be... Don't worry, I'll keep fighting. Um, or wanting to be a professional singer when, you know, everyone around you in church seems to take a walk every time you look to open your voice. I'm not talking about fantasies. I'm talking about daydreams. The stuff that actually, when we get down to it, is real. Stuff that is substantial could become reality. And more than that, I'm talking about kingdom daydreams. So not just the ambitions that we all have, might have with regard to the world. Many of them can be good things, but the things that those ambitions which, given the right tweak, can be used for the kingdom, can be used to achieve something that echoes into eternity. Kingdom daydreams. How do we turn daydreams into destiny? Because I don't know about you, but I don't just want to dwell in the land of sleep. I want to wake up and see things change around me. I'm not content to simply dream. I want to act and see those dreams become reality. T.E. Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia, he said this, and I love it. All men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake in the day to find that it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dreams with open eyes, to make it possible. 
Gideon, this man in Judges 6. I believe he was such a dreamer. And some of the stuff I'm going to say tonight about Gideon, it might smack you as controversial because most of the time, I think we hear of Gideon as being, you know, this, this coward, this weak person hiding away, fearful, not a hero at all. Does that script sound familiar out there? And yeah, I, I want to acknowledge that yes, that is true to a certain degree, but only in the sense that he wasn't acting out something deeper that I believe, and I hope we'll see it tonight, was there in him all along. I believe there are layers to Gideon that we'll explore tonight. The key is not to remain a dreamer. Those who remain dreamers are not men or women who are remembered. They're not men or women of renown. It is those who wake, or as we'll see, get woken up and act, who go on to change the world. Before we look at Gideon, I just want us to look at the, the context a bit. The context in which Gideon was living. Verse 6, if you've got the Bible, just look down at it. Verse 6, it says from the outset that Israel were in a bit of trouble. It said the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now just hold it there. The Israelites did evil. Let's just remind ourselves. Israel are the promised people, the chosen people of God. His covenant people. Which essentially means God and Israel had a union. They, they were married. They were like husband and wife. Israel was the bride of the Lord. And yet Israel did evil. What does this mean? Well, it's akin to a wife cheating on her husband, committing adultery. This is the picture that's given us throughout the Old Testament of Israel with regard to God. God called them to be faithful, called them to be holy, called them to worship him alone. And yet we read of Israel time and again going off, worshipping other gods. We see it in just the next chapter. Gideon called to tear down the Asherah pole because Israel were busy worshipping Baal. Idolatry. It's right here in the story of Gideon. And it's about putting other things first. It's about worship. Where we put our attention, our focus, where we find our hope, our confidence. And if we find it in anything other than God, well, that is what the Bible calls idolatry. And just because we're not fashioning Asherah poles today or bowing down to a little stone statue, well, at least not in this country, although it goes on, it doesn't mean we're any less guilty of idolatry than the people back then. We know the familiar ones, money, sex, power, wherever we put our hope, wherever we find our life, if it's not found in God, that is idolatry. And we read that Israel did evil. We're doing this. And that God judged them. And that he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. For seven years. Seven years of oppression because they turned away from God. What did that look like? What does that oppression, God's judgment on Israel, look like? Well, it looked like invasion, impoverishment, and imprisonment. Just quickly, looking at invasion, look at verse 5 there. 
Speaking of the Midianites, who were nomads, it says they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them on their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Israel got overrun by their neighbors, by their enemies. Their crops were destroyed. Everything living in the land was destroyed. Nothing was left alive. The people were overwhelmed. They were invaded. They were impoverished. Verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So impoverished for them. Impoverished them. God's will for his people is that we prosper. Throughout scripture it speaks of his desire that his people prosper. This isn't swinging down the prosperity gospel route, but especially in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, when they were faithful to God, when, when they walked with him, he walked with them and they prospered. They knew his blessing. They had enough for themselves and to be a blessing to others. Yes, when they walked with the Lord, all went well, but here they did evil and we read that the land was ravaged. Their livelihoods were destroyed. They were poor. They were impoverished. Thirdly, they were imprisoned. Verse 2, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. God's judgment, Midian, the enemy of the people of God, coming against them, meant that they were driven from their very homes. They had to find shelter in, in strongholds, you know, I guess defensible positions, if you like. I mean, thinking about it today, I was like, where does that, in my mind, that takes me back to Helm's Deep in the two towers, I believe it is. I mean, that's, that's what a stronghold is, isn't it? Never been breached, or whatever he says. That's where they went. It's not their home, but they seek security. They went to caves. I think we all know what a cave is. They sought out clefts. You might need a bit of help here. What is a cleft? Well, I think it's... Um, a bit like, you know, you're walking in the lake, so you're going anywhere near a mountain, and you look up at a craggy rock hillside, and you look at that something, and it catches your eye, and you look a bit closer, and you're, you're wondering in your head, is that a cave up there? And then, like, a mountain goat po pokes its head out, and you're like, oh, my gosh, it's a goat! It's a goat. And you get, you get everyone to look around and maybe take a photo. And it's a goat. It's not a cave, it's a cleft. And a goat is taking shelter in there. Except what it's, what it's telling us here is that... This is no longer the home of a goat. This is the home of the people of God. They sought to deck it out. Instead of seeing a goat come out, you see someone coming out, hanging out there, washing. Hello. This isn't where the people of God are meant to be. But this has become their home. They are imprisoned, driven out, homeless. This is what God's judgment on people look like. A people who reject him. People will feel overwhelmed by all that comes against them. They will feel poor within themselves, thinking today, spiritually. They will feel homeless. Isn't that true? When we look around, when we think of people we know today. Maybe it's you. But the good news is that God's judgment only ever comes because he loves us and he wants to draw us back to himself that includes you and me no matter what we've done no matter how much chewing gum we've got on the bottom of our shoe 
God welcomes us back. But he will discipline us. And his judgment draws us back to himself. Verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. There it is. They eventually had had enough and they cried out to the Lord for help. This is a picture that goes on throughout Judges actually. Judges is a funny book and it's full of interesting people who are the most unlikely heroes for delivering God's people. And the pattern is that they'll be doing well for a time, they'll be following a certain leader, and that, then that leader will disappear off the scene and they'll go back to their own ways. Rejecting God, doing evil in his sight and God will judge them and he'll give them over and they'll suffer oppression and a difficult time and then eventually they have enough of that time so they cry out to God again and he comes and he delivers them once again and they enjoy that for a time and then the cycle continues they reject God things get worse they cry out he delivers them they re- you get the picture this is what's going on this is the pattern they cry out to God and what does God do? verse 7 when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian he sent them a prophet What does God do? He gives them his word. He sends them revelation. The thing they needed most. He reminds them, when the prophet comes, of their own story. He rehearses with them where they've come from. He tells them of God's deliverance, of God's deeds and of God's demands on them as a people. He reminds them, just in verse 8, of God's deliverance from Egypt. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God is saying, finally, you've come back to me. This is who I am. You remember when you were slaves for 450 years? I'm the one who delivered you. You remember when I sent those plagues? Those were my deeds, my power shown on your behalf to bring you freedom. He reveals his demands. I said to you, verse 10, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites. Just worship me. All you need to do for it to go well with you and your families is to worship me. Walk with me. Resist adultery with other gods. Stay faithful to me, your husband. And yet... You have not listened to me, God says. And so the nation is in a mess, experiencing oppression, fear, intimidation, defeat. And that's the context. That's the background for Gideon with his story. And I wonder if that feels similar to you today as we look at our society, as we think of our own nation. Do you ever feel intimidated by what's going on from a faith perspective? Do you ever feel outnumbered, overrun? How are we going to get the job done? Does that hit home? Do you ever feel that? I found myself driving along the other morning and just genuinely asking my question, uh, myself the question, does anyone actually become a Christian these days? I, I just... It's so hard, isn't it? The ground is so hard. I know they do. I mean, I became a Christian. Everyone in this room has become a Christian one way or another. 
We all know people who have, but it, sometimes it just feels like, gosh, it's such hard work, isn't it? We're so outnumbered. When you think today, in the UK, perhaps 5% of the country, 5% alone go to church. We feel outnumbered. We feel overrun. What can we do? What difference can we make? Little old us. And you know what? That is exactly what Gideon felt. That is exactly the place he was in when we join him in this story. And we read that the angel of the Lord, who was the Lord himself in this story, the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord appeared and it said that it found, he found Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. Now this is, I think, where Gideon gets his reputation for being a bit of a coward, right? Being a bit of a weakling, one who hides away because threshing wheat, my research tells me, is normally done on top of a hilltop, okay? So back then they would have loads of wheat and you would lay it out and you would get oxen to pull over some heavy stone rollers with iron sort of studs in it which would break the husks off the out. I'm really impressed with my wheat knowledge. Break the husks off the wheat so that then you would pick up this sort of big blanket and do a sort of like, give it the bumps, chuck it in the air and the wind on top of the hill would blow the husks away, separating the chaff from the heavier wheat which would fall down. So you would normally do it outside in the open on top of a hill. But here's Gideon threshing wheat inside in a wine press where you're meant to make wine, funnily enough. And so people read it and they're like, oh, Gideon, what a coward. What a chicken. What a loser. Or just someone who's incredibly sensible. Anyone else? Like, if your nation is overrun by enemies who are all around, if, if wheat is scarce and they find you and they'll confiscate it, doesn't it make sense to do it out of sight? Where you can actually protect some of that food stuff, where you can provide for your own? I call that sensible. The only example I can think of is like back at school, like if you used to be a smoker, any of you, if you used to go, for, you didn't used to go out smoking in the middle of the field where there are teachers around. I mean, that's just crazy. You'd, you'd hide. So I'm told. <laughs> I mean, let's give the guy a break. He's being wise. He's being sensible. Sensible. I mean, you may think I'm going too far in trying to big up Gideon here, but I think there's stuff going on in his heart which the Lord draws out in time, which we're about to see, that makes him even more of a hero. You see, I think we see that from his response, but also from the fact that within this very same chapter, chapter 6, he goes on to defeat an army of 150,000 people with just 300 men. I mean, I think we should cut him some slack because I believe he was a dreamer with huge faith. But it needed the Lord to call it out of him. And we read that the Lord greets him and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Mighty warrior. I mean, the guy's hiding in a wine press, right? But you know what? Gives me a hint that Gideon, there's more going on within him, is his response. You see, he doesn't respond to that greeting with like fear or hiding away or even saying, sorry, who are you? We've never met. There's nothing of that, like what's going on. Straight away, he's into conversation. He knows what's going on. He knows the one 
whom he's in front of. And he engages. And he says, I love it. Well, in this translation, it's pardon me, my Lord. In mine, in the NIV, it's, it's but Lord. You know, he's straight in with his side of the argument. He's saying, no, come on, seriously. If that's true, then why is this going on? If the Lord really is with us. If what you say is true, then why aren't we seeing what the Bible talks about? Those signs, those wonders, that deliverance. Why are the enemies just coming down on us all the time? Why do I have to hide in this wine press to thresh wheat? I feel that's what he's saying. I feel that comes through. And he thinks God's abandoned them. I get that sense from his answer. That he is wrestling. That even as he threshes that wheat, he is wrestling the theology through of what is going on. Why is our nation in the state it's in? Why are we not seeing revival? Why are we not seeing deliverance? What can happen? What can we do? What can I do? I think he's wrestling with all this stuff all the time. And I believe God sees that stuff in him. God knows his story and sees that Gideon, we see in his answer, that Gideon knows his own history. He knows where he and Israel have come from. He knows things shouldn't be this way. But he just doesn't know what to do about it. In other words, Gideon is a daydreamer. And he dreams of a different reality. He dreams of freedom. He dreams of deliverance. But he just hasn't woken up or been woken up to realize it. But now God is here and God is telling him who he is, giving him his identity. The first step, and there are only two, and they come quite quickly. The first step from moving, from daydreaming to destiny, is knowing who you are. Do you know who you are in Christ, really? Don't worry, it's, if you wrestle with that, it's the biggest thing. It takes God to tell us. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. What? Gideon thinks you got the wrong guy. But no, the Lord knows who he is and tells him, do you know who you are? Do we truly know all that we are in Christ? That we are God's children. We are God's sons and daughters. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. We are indwelt by the spirit of the living God. The same spirit who conquered the grave lives in us. Do we believe that? Do you know who you are? It's the most important thing. It all begins with identity. Gideon's journey from daydreamer in the winepress to walking out his destiny, bringing deliverance to a nation, begins with the Lord telling him who he is. You are a mighty warrior, Gideon. Do you know who you are? Because we need to. Our destinies demand it. But it takes God to call it out.
Because God alone can see that seed of faith. He alone can see that dream in Gideon. And today, he alone can see that dream in you. Do you have those daydreams? Those dreams for the kingdom. Those dreams of attempting great things for God. Of seeing God do great things in and through you. Do you have them? They're the kind of things that when they hit you, they just give you the shivers. Do you know those moments? That's what we're called to. See, I believe every time Gideon was down in that wine press, threshing that wheat, I believe deep down he was, he was dreaming of thrashing those Midianites, getting in a fight, picking a fight. But he just didn't know how. He didn't know how. And God comes along and calls him mighty warrior gives him his commission. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. Not someone else's strength. Not the strength you will have. Go today with what you've got, with what I've put in you. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Go, God says to Gideon. It's time to act. It's time to overcome your doubts, Gideon. Gideon had two doubts. He doubted that God was with him and with them. And secondly, he doubted himself. Look at his response. Pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. I mean, have you met me? <laughs> I'm not the man. He had doubts. And that doubt came upon him, saying, who am I? And perhaps when you think of attempting great things for God, you hear those whispers. You pick up those daydreams in yourself. Perhaps your immediate response is, no, no, who am I? You knock it back. You question it. We see Gideon's eyes are too much on himself. In that one verse, verse 15, he says, I, my, I, my, four times. Eyes on himself, me, my, I, in just one verse. And if we start with ourselves, guys, we will never impact the world around us. We will always stay in dream world. Is that a shop? I'm slightly nervous it is. Or is that dreamland? Anyone? Good. Over your heads. Moving on. If we start with ourselves, we stay in dream world. Now you're all there, mattress land. But if you start with God, everything is possible. And destiny can become reality. Verse 16, the Lord answers, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites together. I will be with you. How do we move from daydreams into destiny? It's knowing who you are. And it's knowing who's with you, that the living God, the Lord of heaven's armies, is with you, lives in you by his Spirit, will never leave you, 
nor forsake you. Gideon came to know these two truths and he saw off 150,000 men with just 300. I don't know about you, but I want to see dreams like that becoming reality today. There's been lots of talk here at St. Dee's in the last few weeks about seeds. Tim speaking, sharing his heart, the vision for us as a church about sowing the seed of God, God's word, scattering the seed liberally, near and far. You know, the thing I love about seeds is that they start so small and yet they can become so, so big. I wonder today, what is that seed for you? What is that daydream? What is God stirring in you that he can only bring about through you? Because God today is wanting to move you from dream to destiny. I wonder what moves your heart, what you long to see, what perhaps you weep over in the quietness of your own room. Gideon's heart broke for a nation to see freedom come to his people. And God saw that seed and he watered it and he called it forth. And he showed Gideon who he was and who was with him. The rest is history. Now I wonder today, what will your history be? What will my history be? What will they write about us? About our own stories? About our story as a church? What are we dreaming about? What are our daydreams? Because if we don't have some already, let's go and get some. Because you know what? God is the one who loves to bring dreams into reality, to turn daydreaming into destiny. That's who we are as a church. That's what we're calling out in one another as we see all kinds of ministries get birthed, launched in this new season. It's incredible to see what God is doing, what he's stirring and where it's coming from, that it's coming from you. It's not coming just from Tim and me. I mean, God save us from a church that it's just Tim and my ideas that take us forward. I mean, yeah, we, we have some good ones, thanks. But it'll be limited. It'll be so limited. But just imagine a church where we all come with our dreams, with our visions, where we all birth things, what God is calling us to do, where we listen attentively to the voice of the, of the Spirit and we run with it. Imagine a church like that. That's the kind of church I want to belong to. That's the kind of church that can touch not only a community, a city, but a nation and beyond. If we'll take God at his word, if we'll hear him saying who we are in him and reminding us who's with us, the living God. Guys, we can either choose to stay in the land of sleep with our dreams or we can choose to wake up and walk into our destiny with the Lord himself by our side. Amen.
Should we stand?